we are in Galatians. And the next week we'll be in Ephesians. So let's begin by just starting right where Paul begins his book. So let's begin in Galatians 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. You would think that this would be pretty straightforward, because this is actually where the controversy over Galatians begins. This is in verses 1 and 2. The author identifies himself. Who's the author? Paul. And for most of church history, the maybe I should show that. Most of church history, that was undisputed. Nobody questioned it. Uh, Robert Gramacki says, Even critical liberals acknowledge the Pauline authorship of this book. There is nothing within the book or the writings of the church fathers that would cause anyone to question its authenticity. Now, I say that and then just understand. Even though they say that, there are people who question it. Uh, Donald Guthrie, of all of Paul's epistles, Galatians has always been among the least challenged. It is so evidently has the stamp of authenticity upon it that only the most radical critics have raised doubts. And the, the doubts and the questions of Paul's authorship didn't show up until like the 18th, 19th century when the German liberal theologians showed up and started questioning it. So I want to take a few moments, just because there are those critics who say, well, Paul didn't write this book, I want to take a few moments to look at some of the evidence for Paul's authorship. And we'll start, well, we'll start with the book. Internal evidence. One, Paul clearly identifies himself, and he uses the same customary greeting that he's used to using in just about every epistle. Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ. And you can go Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1. You can go to Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. It's a standard customary greeting. And he actually repeats his name back in Galatians chapter 5, which is unusual. If you go back to Galatians 5, look at verses 1 and 2. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Paul's whole argument in the book of Galatians is don't go back to the law. You're saved by faith. You're sanctified by faith. Don't go back and try to submit yourself again to the law. And here, he uses his name as part of his argument. How does Paul's name help his argument not to go under the law? Because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was the creme de la creme. And if there's anybody who knows, yeah. the Jewish religion, the, the law, it's Paul. That's right. That's right. No one's going to come to Paul and say, Paul, you hate the law. You're just trying to get people to disregard the law for no reason. Philippians 3, he says, Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul was an avid supporter of the law. He loved the law. And the Galatians knew his former life. If you go over to Galatians 1, verse 13, would somebody read 13 and 14? For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Yeah, he was zealous. Thank you. He was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He loved the law. He's the one who's writing this book. You can't then turn around and say, well, Paul, you, you just don't like the law. And the events that he describes in the book of Galatians fit with Paul's life. He actually provides quite a bit of autobiographical information. Uh, we just read Galatians 1, 13 and 14. In Acts 22, we see something very similar where he says he's zealous for the law. Uh, Acts 22, verse 3 I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated in our Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. 
in Galatians 1.13, he says that he was a persecutor of the church. That agrees with what Luke says of Paul in Acts 7. Acts 7, verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Jump down to verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging them off. So when he tells, tells the Galatians, I used to be a persecutor, that fits with what Luke says about who Paul is. You can also look at his conversion account in uh, Galatians 1, 15 and 17. Compare that to Acts 9. Lines up with it. His visit to Jerusalem, which we'll talk about that. Galatians 1, verse 18. Then three years later, that's three years after his conversion, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. That's right after his conversion. Remember, he went to Arabia for three years and then he went back to Jerusalem. And here in Galatians, he says the exact same thing, and that aligns up with Acts 11, verse 30. His ministry in Antioch is described in Galatians 1.22. Lines up perfectly with Acts 13. The fact that he endured persecution, Galatians 6. Galatians 6.17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on the body the brand marks of Jesus. You'll remember from 2 Corinthians 11, where he describes the persecution that he has endured. Okay. I don't want to beat that dead horse, but can you tell this was written by Paul? There's plenty of internal evidence that Paul wrote this book. Right, right. If, if, you can just... Yeah, you just have to you just have to twist your mind enough to get it. Yeah, Paul wrote the book of Galatians. The early church affirmed that Paul wrote Galatians. Uh, who is Marcion? Anybody remember Marcion? He was the he was one of like the first heretics who talked about how the God of the Bible is different in the Old Testament than the New Testament, right? And that caused him to do what? They canonized the New Testament. Okay. Yeah, he was talking about this book doesn't fit. This oh, book's yeah. not in there. This book's not in there. Yeah, and there were certain books that he would get get rid of. When Marcion gave his list of actual books, he said that Galatians was written by Paul. The early church, if you want a few church fathers, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Origen, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Clement of Alexandria all list Galatians as being written by Paul. So the author is pretty clear. Okay, so who is Paul writing to? You thought this was going to be easy. Galatians 1, uh, verse 2. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And you thought, oh, that's easy. He's writing to the churches of Galatia. That's easy. No problem. Here's the next big debate. Who are the churches of Galatia? Uh, this is the only letter that Paul writes where he addresses it not to an individual, not to an individual church. Ephesians is directed to, well, that's a debate too. It's directed to a church. Colossians, directed to a church. Timothy is directed to a person. Titus, directed to a person. Corinthians, directed to a church. Romans, directed to a church. Galatia, directed to churches. It's the only one. Um... The question is, which churches did he include when he referred to Galatia? Galatia describes a region. And the term can be used to refer to two different regions that are right next to each other. Right. North and South Galatia. So Galatia is here. You see the northern region? And then you have the southern region. And the question is, is Paul writing to churches up here, or is he writing to churches down here? Now, why is that an issue? It's an issue because the term Galatia can be used to refer to two different types of regions. One region is the result of the people who are living there, the 
term is used in how do I say this? Um, it would be like Hawaiians moved to this little island, this group of people known as Hawaiians, they moved to this little island, and that, that island became named Hawaii. That's not actually true, but that's my example. There was a group of people who moved there. The Celts, or the Galatian people, moved to this northern region, and they inhabited that region. In 390 BC, they actually became extremely powerful, and they almost wiped out the Romans before Romans became really big. And because they settled in this region, and they were known as the Galatians, that region became known as the Galatians, and it referred primarily to this northern section of what we now would know as Galatia. That all kind of changed. In 189 BC, the Romans had gained some more power, the Romans came in, they conquered the the Galatians and the region of Galatia. They conquered this region. But they allowed the Galatians to still control some of their own governing. They still let them have some level of autonomy. Later, the Romans came back in 25 BC under Augustus. And Augustus made it a Roman province. And this is where the confusion comes in. Because when Augustus came in and made it a province, he included areas down here, that were not part of the original area of Galatia. So you could say this is the ethnographic Galatia, and this is political Galatia. And he recognized regions that were not part of the original area of Galatia, and he called it Galatia. Have I lost anyone? Is anyone confused? <laughs> well, sort of like Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're saying, no, this is part of Russia, too. Yeah, this this. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is Galatia, and this is Galatia. And so, that's where the issue lies. Who is Paul writing to? Is he writing to the churches that are part of the ethnographic Galatia, or part of the political Galatia? This is where there's a lot of arguments, and I'm going to give you some arguments by Louis Burkhoff, just for the, those of you who are really nerdy and would like to read through arguments. There's positive and negative arguments here. So you're just preparing us when we're reading other people's stuff. Right. Now, these are not my arguments. I did not put these together, so please do not give me credit. Mm -hmm. These are from Louis Burkhoff, and it's literally copied and pasted. And I'm sorry the font is small, but I had to try to fit on one page. So, <laughs> But on the left side of that, you will see arguments for and against the northern view, and arguments on the right side for the southern view, and we'll talk a little bit about which one I hold to. Were there Good question. That's, that's part of the actual discussion here. The only churches that we have mentioned, I, I'll tell you right now, I take the view that he's writing to the southern churches. Why? Because we have no biblical evidence that there are any churches in the north. There's no evidence that Paul ever went to the northern churches. Um, here's his first missionary journey. And I'll just, I'll, I'll give you some scripture to go with these. You don't have to turn there. Galatians, uh, Galatians. Acts 13, 4 and 5, he, he sails to Cyprus. He leaves Cyprus, goes from Antioch to Cyprus. While he's in Cyprus, Acts 13, 13, he sails to, pa he goes to Paphos, and then they sail to Perga. So they go up to Perga. Acts 13.51, uh, 13.14, they leave there, they go to Pisidian Antioch, which is further north. Then they leave there, they go to Iconium in Acts 13.51. Acts 14.6, they go to Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby, in the surrounding region, preaching the gospel. So, there's Perga, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Paul then turns around and goes back. His second missionary journey. Acts 15. They were going through... Acts 15.41, they were going through Cilicia, which is down here. Why is Cilicia important to Paul? He's from Tarsus. He's from Cilicia. He goes to Cilicia. Acts 16.1, Paul goes to Derby. 
and Lystra, Acts 16.5, he goes through the Galatian and Phrygian region, which would be here. Acts 18.23 is the third missionary journey. And I want you to note, just every map we've looked at, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia. Those are the only church, those are the only cities in Galatia that we have any biblical evidence that Paul ever visited. And he went to those churches in the first missionary journey. Why? He went to those cities to establish the churches. The second and third missionary journeys were to do what? Not to plant new churches, but to establish the ones that were already there and to build them up. There is no mention of any church or Paul ever going north. And so it's an argument from silence to say, well, because he's using the term Galatia, therefore he must be referring to the northern region. Luke and Paul both say Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Pisidia could rightly be called Galatians because both of them refer to it as the region of Galatia. Edmund Hebert, all scholars are now agreed that the cities of Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby were in the province of Galatia and that the term Galatians would properly apply to them also. John MacArthur, the fact that the book of Acts mentions the four churches established by Paul in South Galatia and mentions none in the rest of the province, makes it probable that the epistle was addressed primarily to those of the southern churches. And you pick up an introduction and you will read page after page after page after page after page after page on this issue. Who is he writing to? Louis Burkhoff, who you have on your handout. Paul used the name Galatia in its official political sense and that the Galatian churches were those of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Although we do not feel inclined to speak dogmatically on the subject, it seems to us that this theory deserves preference. So when Paul was writing to the churches of Galatia, who did he have in mind? The churches in those southern cities of Galatia. Clear as mud? Okay. So... Yeah, I see, this is the challenge of a class like this. Because if I don't tell you about it, and then you go and read it, it's going to be like, wait, what? And when you actually just walk through the issue, it becomes very clear what it is. But we have people who want to argue and debate it. That's one of the, that's one of the bad things of going to seminaries. You have to read all these really bad arguments and... But just so we're clear, he's writing at the Southern Churches. I'm sorry? Right. And you go and pick up a commentary. I don't want you to look at it and go, what is this talking about? So, yes? In the church history, twice God's days, will they go over higher criticism? They might. They might. Um, yeah, it's in the 18th, 19th century. I'll have to ask Michael if he goes through that. I don't know. I would imagine that'll come up sooner or later. I do not like higher criticism. Okay. <laughs> um, what do we know about these churches? First, we know that they were all established on his first missionary journey. If you go over to Galatians 4, Galatians 4, verse 13, but you know that it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. That'd be from Acts 13 and 14. And that which <clears throat> was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. He established their church in the first missionary journey. He actually refers to these as his spiritual ch children. Galatians uh, 4.19, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. They viewed him as their spiritual father. He was the one who preached the gospel to them. And when Paul describes his preaching to the Galatians, remember what he told the Corinthians? I desire to preach nothing but Christ crucified. He writes to the Galatians, and he tells them, I preached so vividly that Christ crucified was portrayed before you. And he uses the, the, the idea of a picture. 
Uh, Galatians 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? And so they got the best preaching you could possibly get. You got it straight from the Apostle Paul. Not only did they get the preaching of Paul, but it was accompanied by the works of the Spirit. It was accompanied by miracles. Uh, Galatians 3, 2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing by faith? Jump down to verse 5. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The Galatians had the preaching of Paul. They had the Spirit. They had miracles. That's what they all had in common. They had something else in common. They were also all disturbed by the exact same problem. The same false teaching was in all the churches. Uh, Galatians 1, 6 and 7, would someone like to read that? It's a well-known passage. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some Yeah. You have been disturbed. You have been pushed away from the true gospel. You're embracing a false gospel. In Galatians 5, 7, he says, You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Look, if you're going to embrace just a little bit of this error, it's going to mess everything up. This is a gospel issue. And you can't hold on to what I taught you and embrace this new teaching. So they were all disturbed by the same false teaching that you need to go back and you need to obey the law in order to be a Christian. We also know that they were predominantly Gentiles. And we can tell that from Galatians. If you go to Galatians 4, look at verse 8. However, at that time when you did not know God... You were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. How does that prove they were predominantly Gentiles? For it. They were pagans. Would Paul say that about the Jews? That the Jews were worshiping false gods? Right. Yeah, he wouldn't say that about Jews. If these were predominantly Jewish communities, he wouldn't say that to them. These are people that were pagans. They were um, they were false worshiping false gods. Also, if they were Jews, he wouldn't need to make the argument that he makes in Galatians five two. Behold, I Paul say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. He doesn't say to them, your circumcision, which is what a Jew would have, your circumcision is useless. He says to them, if you receive circumcision, these are Gentiles who have not been circumcised. And he's saying, look, there's no point in you going back to the law. There's no point in you going to get circumcised. Galatians 6.12 Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. I think we'll look at it later, but he tells them, I wish those people would go mutilate themselves. Now, some have argued that there was a strong Jewish presence in some of these churches, that there were enough Jews there that Paul would make his argument. And they say that because Paul seems to believe that his, his readers know something about the law, that they know something about the Old Testament. Galatians 4, we'll look at this passage later, Galatians 4, 21 through 31, is probably one of the hardest passages to understand in the book of Galatians. Uh, yeah, four, uh, Galatians 4, 21 through 31. And Paul bases his argument on an in-depth knowledge of the Old Testament. By the way, John MacArthur preached this passage and he explains it really well. But the only way they would understand that argument is if they know something about the patriarchs, if they know something about early Old Testament history. 
He also expected them to understand the covenants. He expected them to understand things like the Abrahamic covenant. Galatians 3, verse 7, Therefore be sure that it is to those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Without an understanding of the Old Testament, without knowing about the Old Testament, how would they understand what he's talking about? But does this prove that they were predominantly Jewish? Yeah. So you could say, well, the Judaizers are the ones really teaching the whole thing. Well, I mean, the, the apostles were, were, were preaching and teaching from the Old Testament because the New Testament was being written. There you go. So, yeah, they, they had the teaching from Paul, and Paul in Acts says he went into the synagogues and he was reasoning with them from the scriptures. And then, what's the, the, the desire of a new Christian? As soon as you get saved, what do you want to do? You want to learn. And so it's only reasonable to suspect that the Galatians, as soon as they were converted after Paul's preaching, they would have had a desire to go back and learn about the Old Testament, learn from the Scriptures. All right, so we know who wrote it. We know who he was writing to. We know something about the people that he was writing to. When did Paul write it? When was the Galatians written? And I'll just be honest with you here, this is not like a firm... I know exactly when this happened, but we can just try to reason through this. Uh, Galatians 2 is a good indicator of when Paul wrote. It at least gives us a good start. We discussed Galatians 2 when we were talking about the book of Acts. Remember Acts 15? And the question of whether Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is discussing the Jerusalem Council. Anybody remember when the Jerusalem Council occurred? See, I'm asking the hard questions today. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. So the the Jerusalem Council occurred around 49 A.D. And Paul, Galatians 2, 1 through 10, is describing the Jerusalem Council. If that's true, the only way Paul could have written that is if the Jerusalem Council had already occurred. So he would have had to written sometime after 49. Secondly, if you look at Galatians 1, verse 9. This is the only letter that we have from Paul to the Galatians. He says, As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel, notice at the beginning of that, as I have said before, he's already been to Galatia by the time he writes this. The same thing is in uh, chapter 5, verse 3, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. Well, this is his first letter to the Galatians. He must have already been there. But it's unlikely that this reference to, I've testify again, it's unlikely that's referring to his first trip to Galatia. Why is that unlikely? Right. It's unlikely that the Judaizers show up with Paul there, and you got these new converts learning that they would try to stand up to Paul there. And so it's only reasonable that they came after he left. Remember in Acts 20, he says, after I leave, false teachers will come in. So this would have had to be sometime on his second missionary journey after the Jerusalem Council. Yes. They believe this is actually the earliest written book of Paul. Remember in Galatians 1.18, I pointed this out earlier. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. That's three years after his conversion, he goes to Jerusalem. Now look at Galatians 2, verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me also. Now when he says three years and 14 years, understand in that time when they would have counted this a different way. When we think 14 years, we we think of, you know, I was there for two and a half years. Well, that's not how they would have done it. If he would have spent two years plus three year, three months, he would have just said three years. 
And so that third year could have been a half a year, it could have been a quarter of a year, it could have been three quarters of a year. And so when he says 14 years, it could be 12 years and still be accurate to the way they count. So three years after his conversion, he goes to Jerusalem. 14 years after that is the council that he's referring to in Galatians 2. That puts it right around 49 AD. If you assume, depending on how you date the ministry of Jesus, 33 AD, Jesus dies. 15 to 18 years later, you have the Jerusalem Council. And that lines up nicely with the Jerusalem Council. So Galatians 2 is more than likely referring to the Jerusalem Council. And that council was very clear. You cannot be saved by obeying the law. You don't have to become a Jew first, and then you can become a Christian. You can just become a Christian. You know what the Jerusalem Council didn't answer? Yes, but once you're a Christian, you need to keep the law. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. Now that you're a believer, now you have to keep the law. So, why is that important? Because it would have taken time for them to recover after their defeat at the council. And then they had to come up with a new argument. And then they had to spread that new argument to other people outside of Jerusalem. And that argument does show up. And it shows up in Galatians 2 with Peter. Sometime later, Paul runs into Peter in Antioch. Galatians 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Is this talking about what happened at the Jerusalem Council? This is talking about something that happened shortly after the council. He stood condemned, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. There were men who were claiming that they came from James. James is who? The half-brother of Jesus. He was also the guy who stood up at the council and said, I declare, and he gave the declaration of the council. They claim that James had come to them and given them this teaching. And they caused some fear for Peter. Whatever they said to him apparently worked. Yeah, well, I mean, he was a Jew his entire life, right? What is that, Acts 10? Yeah. Good. Uh, Galatians 2.12, For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So before these false teachers came around, Paul was sitting down and eating with them. He was sharing their food with them. And then these false teachers show up, and Paul doesn't say you're not... He didn't, he didn't accuse Peter of saying they're not believers. He just withdrew from them and slowly began to back away. The term he uses for withdrawal is a military term to describe a retreat, a very sneaky retreat. He slowly, methodically pulled away from the Gentiles so it wouldn't be real obvious. So in front of the false teachers, he was living like a Jew. In front of the Gentiles, he was living like a Gentile. And Paul comes and rebukes him for it. And so he was making the Gentiles at certain times think, you have to live like a Jew, even though he wasn't actually living like a Jew. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So Paul arrives in Antioch on his second missionary journey. He sees this. He rebukes Peter. And then he goes from there, second missionary journey, there's Antioch, and he goes where? Straight into Galatia. He's already dealt with the false teaching of the Judaizers here, and now he's going to go through the region of Galatia, and he's going to find the same teaching in Galatia. And he warns them when he gets there, this is false, stop it, don't do that anymore. And then he continues on his journey. So when does he actually write the letter? 
The best conclusion is that he wrote the letter sometime in 52 AD when he was at Corinth. Remember, he went all the way up and went to Corinth. Why do we say it's in Corinth? That would have given the false teachers enough time to hang out in Galatia and cause a whole bunch of havoc. Because he had to travel all the way to Corinth. Paul is also told by the Spirit to stay in Corinth. Remember, he wanted to go back up to Macedonia. He was in Macedonia doing ministry, and then a big uprising showed up, and he left for Corinth, and he was just going to hang out there until everything calmed down and go back. Well, then his cohorts came down and said, Hey, (laughs) Corinth, you don't want to go back to Macedonia. It's not so great up there. And so he just decides, Well, I'm going to stay here in Corinth. And he ends up staying in Corinth for a year and a half. And while he's there, he apparently receives word from the Galatian churches that these false teachers are really making inroads and that people are abandoning the faith and turning back and going back to the law. And I think there's plenty of evidence that those false teachers really show up after Paul leaves. Uh, Galatians 5.10, I have confidence in you that the Lord, in the Lord that you will adopt no other view but the one who is disturbing you will bear this judgment, whoever he is. These false teachers didn't show up and make clear who they were when Paul was with them. Paul has no idea who these people are. But the messengers show up in Corinth and say, hey, churches in Galatia are falling apart. And so Paul sits down and he writes this letter. Uh, Galatians 4, verse 20, uh, he says, But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone. I want to be there. I just can't go right now. I have a ministry here in Corinth. The Spirit has given me work to do, and I can't go anywhere. So I'm going to write this letter. I'm going to send it back to you. This is the only one of the, the, the this is the only letter that Paul writes to a church where there's almost no commendation to them. He writes to the Romans and he encourages them. He builds them up. He writes to the Ephesians. He encourages, builds them up. The Colossians they had some of the same problems, but there's some encouragement in there to the. To the Galatians, he says, you foolish Galatians. So what was his purpose in writing? I think we already know. His purpose, to defend the gospel of justification by faith in Christ alone and define the implications of the gospel for the Galatian believers. You're saved by faith and you will be sanctified by faith, not through works of the law. All right, questions so far? Okay. I Yeah, I mean, the false teachers don't waste any time. You come in and just wreak havoc. Okay. We need to get to the interpretive challenges. I've put all the interpretive challenges that I'm going to cover or that we have covered on your handout uh, just so you have them, just for the purpose of review. Who are the recipients of Paul's letter? Those are the options. We've already talked about it. South Galatia would be the right answer. I'd probably pick that one. I think that's a little too early. To say 48, 49, that that means he's writing the book of Galatians during the council. And how do you get from the council to Antioch in the same year? I don't think that works. So I think that's way too early. I think the second second option there is better. Second one. Who is the identity of Paul's opponents? A couple of options here. Who are these false teachers? The Judaizers, the Judaizers and antinomians, and the Gnostics or syncretistic Jews? Judaizers? Yeah, I think this last one we can do away with. The Jews after the Babylonian exile, once they come back, don't really engage in idolatry anymore. They're done with idolatry. And even today, there's no record of Jews engaging in idolatry anymore. They weren't very syncretistic by this time. Syncretistic means you're going to just add other gods and other religions to Judaism. It's like today, you know, I guess the best example would be like Roman Catholicism that adds all this weird stuff to it. 
Yes. Ironically, though, I mean, the Jews kind of started worshiping their traditions over God. So they're still kind of. Yeah, they went more legalistic on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Right. right, right. Yeah. So I, I think the third one we can get rid of, I think this boils down to, is he writing to antinomians? What are antinomians? Right. There's no law. Do whatever you want. Uh, the term actually comes out of Matthew 7, when he says, um, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. It's actually the Greek word for law with an alpha privative on the front of it. So ah, law, no law. There is no law for us to obey. So is that what he's arguing here in the book of Galatians? Their proof text is Galatians 5.1. The people who say that he's writing antinomians point to Galatians 5.1. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And they say, well, see, that's an argument against antinomianism. Christ set us free, and then he goes on later in the chapter to describe not being in sin, don't follow after the desires of your flesh. That's an argument against antinomianism. Let's look at this in a wider context. What is Paul talking about by the time he gets to Galatians 5.1? All through the book, he's talking about the law. He mentions circumcision 12 times. He mentions uncircumcision three times. Galatians 2.3, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Galatians 5, verse 2, Paul says, circumcision benefits you nothing. If you plan to earn your spot with God, if you plan to keep your spot with God through the law, it's a waste of your time. The law cannot save. Galatians 2.16, no one is justified by the law. Galatians 3.11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Galatians 3.2, he says, it wasn't by the works of the law that you received the Spirit. Galatians 3.3, it's not by the law that you're going to be sanctified. Paul even says that the law makes clear that the law cannot save. Galatians 4.21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? If you just read the law and if you understood the law, you would know that's not the means by which you can be saved. So in Galatians 4, he gives a, an analogy. By the way, if you look at Galatians 4, 24, anybody have in there, this is allegorically speaking? If you have the NASB, that's what it says. Okay, this is not allegory. Allegory is a story that doesn't give you a meaning doesn't tell you what the meaning is. And the meaning is secret. And you just kind of have to read behind the lines to figure out the secret. That's not what Paul is doing here. This is more of, this is an illustration. It, it's allegory. Yeah, it's the word which we get allegory from. If you transliterate the word, it's allegory. But the word does not mean a, a story without a meaning. It's not what it means. This is an illustration. And he compares the Mosaic covenant given at Sinai to salvation by faith. That's just the basic concept here. Galatians 4.22, For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. There's the bondwoman who's in slavery, and there's the free woman. 4.23, But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. The law is all about the flesh. Salvation by faith is all about the promise and living by the Spirit. And everyone who is under the law is a slave. Galatians 4.25, Now this is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Those under the law are enslaved to the law, but you are not under the law. Yes, they would still be under the law. They're still looking to the law to save them. Uh, Galatians 4.28, you're not on the law. Brethren, like Isaac, you are children of a promise. 
You're not slaves to the law. You're free. Galatians 4.30. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. The bondwoman is the law. The free woman is salvation by faith. Living according to the promise. Is his discussion here about antinomianism? He's refuting the idea that Christians keep the law and are saved or sanctified by the law. And that's the context in which Paul then turns around in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. You are not freed from morality. You're not freed from living by the Spirit. You're freed from obedience to the law because obedience to the law is a form of slavery. Okay, well, that's the question. How is obedience to the law a form of slavery? But you can't ever meet the standards. You cannot ever meet the standards, so you're, you're stuck. Yeah. And you don't have the power in the flesh to, to, to do it. Right. Yeah, 613 commandments. <clears throat> Ten commandments makes it seem easy. But when you go and look at the law, there's 613 commandments. And the moment you break one of them, you're now guilty of all of it. James 2.10, For everyone who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. That's a no-win situation. Was that the, was that the thinking or the, the understanding in the Old Testament? Or that you break one law, you're guilty of all? Or is that more of a... Yeah, well, if you broke one law, you'd have to go and make a sacrifice for it. Like, if you, one of the things that stands out to me when I read, like, Leviticus... Every time you sin, you had to go kill one of your animals. A sheep had to die, a goat had to die. Something died as a result of you sinning. And that's your flock that you're getting rid of. There was a consequence for every single sin. And there was blood shed on every single sin. The shedding of blood. So, in ancient Israel... If you sinned and then you died before you could offer a sacrifice, were they condemned? Or let's say they offered the sacrifice and then they died, would they be okay? Like, mm. how would that work? Or were they all condemned? So Old Testament saints were saved just like New Testament right. saints. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yes. But because they were saved by faith, their sin convicted them and they would offer right. Nobody in the Old Testament was saved by those sacrifices. If you read through okay. Hebrews, it says those sacrifices were just pointing to the one true sacrifice. Mm-hmm. On the Day of Atonement, he would go into the tabernacle and he would sprinkle blood. The next year, he'd go into the tabernacle, what would he see? The blood from last year, when he went and sprinkled more blood. And that was just a reminder. This isn't permanent. This is not going to work. That was the whole point of the law. Yeah, they could not save. Right. Yeah. So he's not arguing against antinomianism. Uh, let's just keep running through Galatians 5 real quick. The law doesn't give grace in the sense of if you disobey the law, if you break the law, and that's what you're going to be justified by, what do you get? You get justice. There, there's no grace and mercy. Galatians 5 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. And that is a whole interpretive challenge in and of itself. Those who are in Christ do not live according to the law. They don't live according to the flesh. They live according to faith. Uh, Galatians 5, 5 and 6. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. We don't have time to go through all of that. Let me show you. So I think the best answer here is that one. The meeting of 2, 1 through 10, there are the various answers that are given. The famine visit is way too early. It's, it's just way too early. Uh, the visit of Barnabas and the intervention, way too early. An unrecorded visit. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, these seem to work. Um, these, these two, where is it? These two are too early. This is an argument from silence. How do you know there's an unrecorded visit? 
there's not even an indication of an unrecorded visit. And if you compare, as we did when we looked at Acts 15 and um, the book of Galatians, there's too much, too much similar, too many similarities. I can't speak this morning. So Jerusalem Council would be the best view. Galatians 5.4, one of these you're going to be able to get rid of real quick. Which one would you get rid of? Okay, yeah. Um, MacArthur takes the second one. He takes the view that they were never saved. Most commentaries that I can find take the last view. They fall, it's, a, it's a fall into legalism. You have fallen from grace in the sense that you are now being a legalist. I think either one of those is possible, but I would really have to send, spend a lot more time studying out the passage to be dogmatic. So I'll say either one of those is possible, but I won't be dogmatic on which one. Yeah, good point, because it, if what happened was, let's say they went and they started doing that, and they went and got circumcised and started obeying the law, and then they get the letter from Paul, and they repent, well, that's just evidence that they're actually believers, right? So the question is, what they do after that? So, any other questions, comments, concerns? We have a couple minutes. You didn't know there were so many controversies in Galatians, did you? Yeah. So when we went when we went through Galatians with Mike Bell, he was kind of adamant about it not being the Jerusalem Council. I I don't see what the big deal is, you know, other than timelines and whatnot and stuff. I don't see it as a Yeah. I take it as a Jerusalem Council and there's faithful men who disagree. It's not, it's not an essential No, it's not an essential. So, and one day we'll all know the right answer. Well, if you guys have nothing else, let me close this in prayer and we'll be done. Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the book of Galatians and for Paul and the life that he lived and uh, the wonderful teaching that he gives. Uh, we do ask that you would help us to live our life according to faith, dependent upon the Spirit, not looking to the law, not looking to justify ourselves by obedience to the law, but trusting in the promise of Christ and trusting in of what Christ has done on the cross for us. And we ask this in His name. Amen.